Welcome to Talking Volleyball. I'm Steve Hammond, BJ Leroy, and I talk with coaches, players, and others who have a love for volleyball. Sue Gazanski, author of the Volleyball Coaches Survival Guide, USAV cadre member, and member of multiple halls of fame, joins us to talk about learning as coaches in our coaching journey. Hear how Sue approaches learning, working with others, and the endless coaching journey. Well, BJ, we are here, and uh, we are late. So folks who have tuned in, uh, we're almost, <laughs> actually, we're almost on our normal time. So um, so for anybody who has been waiting, thank you for waiting. Uh, and uh, at the moment, uh, we'll, we'll just move on. And so how's, uh, how things up by you real quickly, BJ? What's going on? Excellent. Um, not much going on volleyball-wise except uh, playing uh, mostly poorly, uh, but playing a little bit uh, here and there. I'm good and sore today after playing a couple hours yesterday. But how about you? What's going on there? Uh, well, I'm doing the grandparent thing starting after our meeting today. I get to go to the two-hour dance recital, followed by taking part of the family to the uh, airport uh, so they can go to Disneyland, and then we keep the little one for a couple of days. So it's going to be uh, all hands on deck. So that should be fun. So, so you will be learning over the next couple of days quite a bit. Oh, You're I will relearning. be learning a ton. I will be learning and relearning a ton. <laughs> so that'll be fun. So uh, let's uh, jump right into it. I'm going to let you do a little bit of introduction. I'm going to put our first little slide up here for you to talk about. For yeah, that's a great... Uh... <laughs> we were both of us digging a little bit uh, for some history on Sue Gazanski. Um and uh, I did so multiple Hall of Famer, which I knew as a player and as a coach. I did not know about uh, the fourth Hall of Fame. She's in the ABCA Hall of Fame, the Riverside Hall of Fame as a longtime coach there. Very successful. This is uh, her playing career Hall of Fame induction for six different sports. Volleyball, basketball, tennis, badminton, track and field, and softball. She's probably turning six shades of red right now. And then, um, Sue, tell us, what is the Southern California Jewish Sports Hall of Fame? That's another one that I came across that uh, you've been inducted into. For Jewish Jewish athletes and, and coaches. And... Um, there were quite some famous people in there, and the the person that I know you would know is Sandy Koufax. So that's someone that's from from our area. Um, so I was honored to, to be inducted in that Hall of Fame, and I think part of that happened because I coached four of the Maccabea Games, and that's for Jewish athletes. It's like the Olympics. And I coached the women's team with Russ Rose the very first time in 1980. Wow. And then it's every four years. So then I coached the women's team by myself. And then I coached the men's team twice. So I think that's how I got into their Hall of Fame. But um, what a great experience. The coach international yeah, cool. into a stadium with 60,000 screaming fans. So honored. That's a, that's amazing. What um, so when I asked you to come on, this breaks a little bit of our, our rule that Steve and I have have been following, which is uh, we we talked a little bit about this. 
we haven't, we've been having people come on that are experts, but we've not talked about their expertise, their area of expertise, um, because we've been doing our best to be learners and, and talk through things that people have learned about um, or are working on learning about. So you, we're, we're breaking this rule. You, Like I said before, by anybody's estimation, you're an expert volleyball coach, having coached uh, you know, Division One and internationally at both men's and women's and, and a bunch of different places in between. So the, the thing, the, this little story that made me want to have you on was, um, if I'm correct, you retired from Riverside in 2009, effectively almost not quite ending your coaching career, because I know you did a little coaching after that as well, but in 2015, I did CAP 3. You were one of the instructors, and this was out at uh, uh, this was out at uh, the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. So six full years after you had retired from coaching, you're sitting in the stands. It was uh, Karch Karai was was speaking, and I think it was one of the first times that he was ever going to give uh, one of these presentations. And it was. Um, it was appropriate that he was doing so. They had just won a world championship uh, the prior year in 2014. And uh, you're sitting real close to me and you're feverishly writing notes and just to scribble in a way. And I, I always, I wanted a copy of those notes. So what, maybe you don't remember the talk, but why were you still studying? Yeah. I, I yeah. What was it? Yeah. Um, yes, we're checking to make sure everything's okay. Yes. Uh, it's interesting because I've gotten that comment about taking notes from a lot of different people, because when I go to, when either when I'm the presenter and I'm listening to other coaches, I'm taking notes. Sometimes I would go to clinics and I'd be the only coach that really had a great deal of experience. And I'm the one sitting there hiding in the back a little bit embarrassed and I'm taking I'm taking notes and I always want to learn and I always want to know what other coaches what their ideas are what are they thinking and and so I don't want to forget it and so I take notes and um and sometimes, like I say, I sort of hide in the back because I'm thinking, what are these other coaches thinking? This is the person that's also presenting and she's taking notes, but um, it's served me well. I have, I have most of those notes um, still. And, and I, re I remember Karch speaking at that because I think if you might remember, he said, don't take any notes. Um, he was talking about how to learn and to remember three things that are really important after you read something, after you hear something, but I'm not so good at remembering. And if I take the notes, <laughs> yeah, I definitely remember after taking the notes and I refer to them. And I'm thinking about putting some of those notes together and maybe writing a third book. So that would be. Ah. That's, uh... <sighs> that's one of the topics that I had for you. And since you brought it up, um, it, 
I struggled early in my career to find a lot of information about volleyball. There were some drill books out, and I know you wrote one uh, uh, early on. Um, It always seemed like there was a shroud of secrecy, especially with, uh, with volleyball on the women's side where people were kind of holding things real tight to the vest. And you didn't do that at all. I mean, you, you laid out in, in your second book, The Volleyball Coach's Survival Guide, you went down what looked to me to be lists of very important uh, and detailed items and how to run a program. I just, what, what, what made you want to be so open and share what you had learned? It, it's interesting because when I started coaching in the 70s, so I played in the late 60s and early 70s, um, the idea was to share. We did camps all over the United States, and the people that did those camps were the people that have been very successful. Doug Beal was one of them, Terry Liscavich, um, another national team coach, Mick McHaley. We all traveled during the summer doing Olympic volleyball camps. And the idea then was to grow volleyball, to make it better. And we had no problem with sharing all the information with each other. And for example, we'd all be at a camp, let's say in Graceland, Iowa. And one person, Doug Beal, for example, would present to the entire group something on blocking, for example, all of us would listen. Then we'd each go to our courts with our groups and we would teach what they were talking about. And then the next person would do the same thing. So then it was McHaley. And um, I I became a, a knowledgeable coach by working with them and everyone shared the information. And I think that was the beauty of early volleyball because we were there to grow volleyball we were there to help each other get better and we had no qualms about worrying that um it was gonna be a competitive situation and make somebody better than they were Um, and i remember when teaching a theory class at the university on volleyball um terry laskavich says oh come to my car i have got some files in my trunk and I went to his car with him and he gave me all these things. Well, this is what I use for teaching this segment. This is what I use for this. So people shared. And I think today there is such a premium on winning that people are afraid that if they share information that somebody else might take that information and be better. But as we know, the sharing makes everybody better. And it's how you utilize the information. There's a lot of other aspects just because I've told you something it isn't even necessarily going to work for you. It's, it's how you utilize the information. But in the old days, that was just a part of our nature. We, we shared to make volleyball better. And I continue, continue to do that. How do you, because you've heard so many people talk and you've spoken a lot, how do you parse out the, uh, the, the bad stuff? I mean, there are going to be things where people are guessing or they're, uh, they're, they're hoping something is going to work and they 
maybe they just had great athletes and despite what they were coaching and something worked, how do you, how do you work through that type of, um, in, at Wisconsin, we would call it sifting and winnowing <laughs> we'd get rid of some of the garbage, but what, what's your process for that? Well, the first thing is you just need to be non-judgmental. If you want to learn, you need to listen carefully and, and really, you know, siphon through it and figure out what will work for me. What do you think is biomechanically correct? You know, there are some ways of judging, you know, what information is good and what information is, is good for you. And I, I think this is can be a definite problem because there is so much information out there now before like you said there were very few books there still aren't a whole lot of books out but there are a lot of books out on different sports you you can learn from a lot of different areas that are going to help you coaching uh, learning from different coaches in different sports but on the internet now gosh you can run into a ton of things and which of those things are are valid for you and which of them are, are correct. So one, you just need to have an open mind in order to be open to something new and something that you didn't think of, something that um, you wonder about. And maybe you experiment it and make a decision later on whether it's good or not. But you, there is a lot of information out there and you really need to be careful of what you um, make the decision on that it's going to be good for you but at the same time yeah there's information out there that that is garbage and um do, do you do you buy into that do, what, what's your de decision that you make so it can be difficult but um to be we need to be curious about other ways of doing things that maybe we didn't think of and maybe we didn't like before and maybe we'll change our mind. Yeah, I, uh, I was thinking back to um, when I first get, got started looking for things before your book, Sue, because I started coaching right about the time your book came out. Uh, and uh, prior to that, I was curious about the sport. So I've got this beauty here, um, which... Uh, is it's it's funny because one of the guys that I used to play club ball against is is in one of the photos in here, and I'm like I had no idea that he was an All American, and you know the the photos in here are priceless. Um, but uh, you know, it, it, and then I return to your book because I'm I'm about to take on a slightly different thing in in what I'm coaching, and I'm like oh. Why am I agonizing over all this stuff? Sue's got checklists in here for me. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not using my resources very well. So thank you for that. You're going to be uh, big in my uh, reading list for the next little bit. My players who is um, former players that is coaching and very, very successfully, she told me that before she played in the matches, when she was playing for me, she would go over some of those checklists, like on blocking or defense or passing. And that would sort of get her mindset like a visualization that would prepare her to play. And you you never know what players do uh, until they tell you some of those things off the court. Uh, and so those checklists have actually come in pretty handy. 
I want to say one thing, though, um, BJ, I don't know if, if, and Steve, I don't know if you know, but when I first stopped coaching at the university, I was asked to be an assistant at the NCAA Division Three school at the Claremont Colleges out here. So I did that with the women's team for three years. And for the last 10 years, I've been coaching boys at the Claremont High School, our local high school. So in a sense, I've never really retired because I continued up until, you know, I continued to do all the USA clinics and, and teach and coach and all the FIVB clinics coaching around the world. So um, I have yet to retire. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's good. We don't, uh, I don't think we want to lose you from the coaching ranks uh, for sure. And, and certainly not as a teacher uh, as well. I, one of the, one of the lessons that you used to give for cap, you probably still do. Uh, I think I watched you give this, I want to say at least three or four times, which was, uh, it was always titled, I don't think the title was great, but they called it problems with serve receive. I would have said, you know, maybe issues or uh, thoughts about serve receive, but because that's the way you, you taught that it wasn't so much centered on the problem. It was centered on the creativity of, you know, what, what can we do if this is the situation? And I, I loved I loved the way you did it. You you would say something like, "What if your what if your uh, opposite hitter is the best passer on your team? How would you work on this rotation? What if your M two was the best passer, and we're going to put you in rotation four, and now you have to figure out how do we how do we arrange the surface? I just I loved the way you did that. What what was is that something that you came up with? Was that the curriculum? Uh, what, just kind of walk us through your thought process on that. Well, speaking of sharing, I, I think I've either stolen or got information from other coaches because doing the CAP clinics, you're working with a lot of other coaches. And I think... Um, I think the very first time really I started getting that idea was from um, Shelton Collier, who did something on on serve receive and, and talking about that. And I think the one that you're talking about also that I did involved three middles. And it was, you know, what what's another option for you if you don't have two middles that are the the best ones that you want to use and you use a three middle offense and, and how would that affect everything else? How does that affect serve receive? So that part was more mine was with the three middles and, you know, coming up with something that was a little bit different because, um, and we can talk about it now or maybe at another time, but I was really, really curious why people do the things that they do coaching wise. And so I spent some time looking why, why we have the defenses that we have, why we are now passing with three, three people instead of five, like we did for years and years and years. Um, how did we come up with these different things? And so I want people rather than just 
them going, oh, look, at everyone's doing this. Let's do that. Uh, instead of being creative and thinking what is best for my team. And so that creativity um, sort of helped me think of, well, what do we do if we have three really good middles and we want to utilize them? And how does that help our offense? How does it help our defense? And how would we um, arrange it around them with the other tactical aspects that we need? So it was a combination of sharing, stealing, um, and my curiosity for, well, why, why do people only use two blockers? So that, that, that was the idea. But I, but I love problem solving. I love coaches that think. I love players that think. And that's what makes you, in my estimation, a really good coach. And if you're the first one to come up with some new ideas, everyone else is following you. So otherwise, you're, you're just always coming from behind because you're taking what everybody else has. But if you can make it yours, then that's what's going to make you more successful in, in my mind. I, I think that's, uh, I, I love that the, the, the parts on creativity, you do have to be somewhat creative. Um, I think having some, maybe having some principles first before you go real crazy, it, you, uh, you know, there are certainly things that uh, we know aren't going to work. Um, and some of our principles can tell us, uh, can tell us that, but I, I think that aspect of creativity and, uh, you know, experimenting and measuring the seeing, uh, you know, is this creative thing that, that I've found, uh, is it going to work for us and, and, uh, figuring out either statistically, or like you said before, biomechanically, or, um, even just, uh, using the laws of physics, <laughs> is this going to work for us? Um, those are, those are things to have in mind. I, I just, I see a lot of what you do. I see somebody copying something and hoping it's going to work. Um, it, it, the one that comes up a lot is our team can't pass. So uh, what, what do I have to do to get them to pass better? And my question is always, well, how are you, how are you teaching them to pass? What is it about passing that you're teaching? Well, I've got the ball and I'm tossing it to them and I'm working on their form. I'm like, Oh, have you considered serving at them to teach them to pass? I, I don't know. Can it be that simple? Can we learn just by coming up with simple ideas like that? I, I'd like to think so, but I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> but we, but in the CAP courses, we, we always had the guiding principles that you're talking about. And you need to have some principles that help guide you to what you're doing. And, and there are some things that you should do and some things that you shouldn't do. And those principles will guide you to, to help you make those decisions. But um, with the idea of, of passing, they go, how do, how do I make my passers better? Or how do I make their stats be better? And I just say, make the target bigger. Uh, because when, when I'm statting passing and the target's small, very few of the people that I'm statting will pass real well because I've made the, the targets so small that they have to be perfect. And 
when when sometimes coaches say we're just not passing well we can't win if we don't pass well and i like to say yes we can we we can win if we if we just get the ball up now we're going to have to win a different way the hitters are going to have to hit a high ball you know if if the team uses quick sets okay we we can't do that but we can still win we don't have to pass perfectly to win so i i think guiding players to be positive about what they're doing, whether some we say something is working or not. And, and sometimes that involves passing because passing seems to be such a simple skill, but it's just not. Jay Hossack was the first person that I heard talk about that. Of course, the men's coach um, at uh, George Mason, he, he said uh, it, it, their off season is the fall. He came to do a cap session and he said during the fall, they just decided they wanted to run their full offense from 15 feet off the net and not just from three feet off the net. They said, he just said to the guys, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to run the offense from here and from here and from here and everywhere in this large target of passing area. We can't just wait for perfect pass. And it was a disaster at first. He said they were terrible at it, but by the end of the fall, they were really able to run their offense pretty effectively. He said, I want to say he said maybe 12, 13 feet off the net, but they could still run quick attack. And uh, he said, really all he did was that. They just said, we're going to have a bigger target now. And you have to run the offense from this target. So, so for one, it, it opens up the minds of the players to understanding that doesn't have to be something that's perfect. And in a lot of ways, running the, um, keeping the pass off the net is of value because it's not good to set right on the net. So if we, if we set two to three feet off the net, we're setting a little bit more parallel to the net rather than setting at an angle. And it's easier to keep the ball off the net and setting the middle when teams set the middle on those perfect passes, of course, the middle blocker generally knows that this is when they're gonna set. And it doesn't give much room to hit with range when the ball is set on top of the net, unless you are the six, seven, you know, the, the top international players that that can, hit so high and hit so many angles, they can do it. Um, in general, setting off the net is much easier. And if you're passing off the net and setting off the net, those two go together pretty well. So we, you know, you, you just have to open your mind. And there are coaches that say, we have to do it this way. And this is the only way. And I think those are the coaches that if they open their minds to a broader range of options, could possibly be better. I, I think uh, this is something that I wanted to get back around to. Um, it, your, in your second book, The, the Volleyball Coaches uh, Guide, uh, it, there's a lot of detail and you've, you've gone into a, almost every topic that a volleyball coach is going to struggle with at some point uh, in that book. Um, it, you've 
obviously spent a ton of time outside of the gym thinking about very seriously about all of these topics. And I, I get accused of that too, about thinking almost being too serious when I speak with other coaches, but I, I want to get, I want to just want to ask, do we spend all that time uh, in serious thought mode simply because our time in the gym is so short and we want that time to be so perfect and so entertaining and enjoyable and learning? I mean, is that, is that the real reason to take everything so seriously in, in coaching? Well, I think the reason why I do it, and I think both of you, is I have a passion for volleyball. I have a passion for coaching. And I just want to do the very, very best I can all the time. And clearly, we aren't in the gym for a long time. And we want to get the very most out of it we can. And that's why um, I write up details practice notes and we put it on the board we share it with the with the athletes because we want to be completely understood with what we have learned and what we want to share but I think that everything that I do in my nature is transferred to the idea of can I use this for coaching can I use it to be a better person myself and how I deal with things, but can I utilize it? So books that I read that aren't about um, necessarily volleyball, for, for example, and I wrote an article on team cohesion from this book, and it was icebound about the group of people that live in the, um, the South or the North Pole, and, and they're doing research there, and they're stuck there for six months out of the year because the weather is so bad, planes can't go in and out. And I was fascinated by the idea of how they live together as a team, each with their specific roles, and each person had to do their specific role and talent in order for the group to survive. And I thought about that and thought that is what we have to do to serve, not survive physically, but to survive successfully, you know, on a team. So it was the same idea. Everything that I do, I think about and, and relate in some way to volleyball. And it, it has been useful. Yeah, I I think that's uh, I have a dog running off here, and that's that's not my uh, that's not my alarm clock. That's my dog. Steve, you got to ask the next question while I get the dog out of here. Okay, okay. So um, one of the things I was thinking about was you know if you think about the last oh I don't know pick a pick five ten years things that you've seen that have changed that may have changed how you think about coaching. I, I'll go back further. Uh, when I talk to my players, I'm like, yeah, when I started, an overhand pass on a serve-receive was an immediate, you were done. Um, and so that was one thing that, but but more recent things that you've seen that have changed how you coach or how you think about the game. Gosh, there, that's such a good question, and there's so many ways to answer it. I, I'm going to start 
with just, you know, some changes that I've, I've made or, you know, so for, for example, um, once I retired from the university as a head coach, I became an assistant coach. And that was a huge change for me because I always was the boss. We did what I said. And when I became an assistant coach, that no longer happened. I could give suggestions, but the head coach didn't always take those suggestions. And I thought about how I would treat an assistant if I ever were a head coach again and had an assistant. And I would do a lot of things differently. Um, and one of the biggest things is I would listen to them better. You know, when they came up with different ideas and thoughts, I'm thinking to myself, this has worked. I, I like what I'm doing. And I wouldn't give it the consideration that I really should have. Um, and so I've made changes um, and, and I've learned how to be an assistant coach um, and how to try to get my suggestions listened to um, and how to try to utilize the value that I can add as an assistant. How can I get the head coach to understand that some of these things might be beneficial? So um, just changes in, in my coaching have occurred because I, um, I changed roles as from a head coach to an assistant. Um, Another change that I, I've made, and I don't know that I like it, but um, I think in today's world, um, the players are softer and the parents have a lot of influence. And in my idea, you can't be as demanding. I was a very demanding coach. I was really tough. I pushed the players really hard. And, um, and they responded to that and they became very competitive and very able to handle difficult situations, difficult emotions that occurred on the court in competitive situations. They were able to push through um, fatigue, to push through the frustrations of setbacks. And I don't feel well, I, I haven't been able to push as well now as I did before, because I think the players are a little bit more spoiled, a little bit more coddled, um, and the parents are involved, and sometimes they don't understand why you would be doing it in a certain way. So I, I've changed you know, from, from that aspect. Um, training methods have changed a great deal. So my, um, my most influential coach for me was Moo Park, who was from South Korea, who came to Southern California. Uh, he worked with their national teams and he brought in the idea of the Asian training with um, individual drills and a lot of repetition, Thing, things, and I did that for years and it was very, very successful. And then in the 80s, so that was the 70s, in the 80s, I started with CAP, I think in 1985. And 
then we were talking about more scientific ways of doing things and more research and that you should do more game related small small games drills and you should do more scrimmages and you should not do the other so there became two schools of thought one was the block training and one was the random training so one was more repetitious drills and one was more scrimmages and um some a lot of people buy into one or the other and so I, I have changed. I do, I'm more eclectic. I don't do just the individual skills, but I do them. And I do more of the scrimmages and small games, but I utilize, I have a big toolkit and I utilize all those tools in that toolbox. Um, and that's sort of my philosophy, but um, over the years, that has been a change and that has been a controversy that that continues today. And I think you just need to make your own decision how you do that. But I think some people are misled by thinking you should never do some of the block training. And I think that that's a mistake. Um, there, is, there is a there's always a balance. So there's a balance in how we train and what the methods are there's a balance between being too demanding or too nice, you know, not pushing the players enough or pushing them too, too much, pushing them over the edge where they can't handle it. And it all deals with who you have, what their age is, what their skill level is, um, what their motivation is, what their goals are. Um, so I think that when I began coaching, I sort of saw black and white, this is the way you do it. And as I've grown as a coach, I realized there are options and each of those options work in different situations. But that, that, that's probably, you know, those three things I mentioned are, are three big learning curves for me and, and changes that I've made as a coach, as I've grown. You know, it, it strikes me that the change from college to high school athletes, you know, you, you did both that and, and from women to, to, to men or boys at uh, boys high school. Um, that, that was intriguing uh, because I, you know, I haven't coached at the college level eh, a little bit, but, you know, assistant at a, at a community college, which is not the same thing. Um, but, uh, those differences, um, what, what do you find at high school? Cause I know a lot of other folks who watch and listen to the, to the replays of this, um, are, are high school or even middle school coaches. And what are some of the things you've found different as you've moved to younger players? It's interesting because yesterday, uh, the head coach and I from the high school went and did a clinic at the middle school for sixth, seventh and eighth graders. Because uh, the eighth graders will be coming to us the um, next year, and it, it's interesting to see those those young boys. We just did it with the boys as athletes because some of them were just unbelievable great athletes, and they all had a passion. They all just loved it. They had so much fun. And with boys and with the high school boys, they love being competitive. They love hitting 
And if they hit one ball and it goes down, they will not ever stop talking about that. In the game, they can do a ton of things wrong, but they remember when they blocked that one ball at the beginning of the match. So it, it's, I, I love coaching the boys from the standpoint of they are, for most part, naturally competitive when they get into sports. And they just enjoy the fun of competing. And if they do anything well, they, they are happy. Um, and there's a bit less drama. There, there still can be drama, but the, basically I can go in there. I can be more demanding. I can tell, tell it like it is, and they accept that. Um, though I think you still need to be somewhat sensitive with, with guys. You, um, it's not that you can just do and say whatever you want. But for me, it's, it's a little bit easier um, co coaching the men. But the difference between coaching at the university at Division I level is they're there to win. They want, they want to have fun. They want to have a good relationship with their teammates. But they have a goal. For us, it was to make the playoffs, to make it to nationals. Earlier in my career with Division I, we were struggling more. But we wanted to be successful in the Big West League. At high school, most of them are not gonna play in college. And so they're there for the social aspects. They're there to have fun. And winning isn't always the most important thing. Um, and it's, it's, a nice, it's a nice change. It, it's a nice atmosphere to just have people love playing the game, but not having it be quite so meaningful. If they have to miss practice because they're they're playing in the band, they miss practice. Well, our players at the university did not miss practice, but there's a lot of other activities that are going on in high school, and they're all important. And I I think it's great that they're either playing more than one sport, or they're in the band, or they're in choir, or they're they're on the debate team. They're doing other things, but how you coach in that situation because the motivation level is different. Uh, I, I see that as, as the biggest difference, but I, I love coaching. I love coaching the girls. I love coaching the guys. It's just a slightly different situation. And it, it is different being in, in the high school, but it, it, it's really fun. It's fun for me coaching. The Coaching boys uh, was, I, I've spent just a very small amount of time coaching uh, boys. I've coached men's uh, club, uh, essentially, although they're not very coachable uh, at, at that age. <laughs> but uh, it, yeah, boys, it's throw the balls out on the floor and they're starting a competition. Before you even say anything, they're doing something. How hard can I hit? How far can I serve from? How high can I serve? It, it's, it's, like herding cats in a different uh, way. Um, it, there's no motivation needed. Uh, it's just motivation to do the right things. Um, you know, cause, cause they're gonna, they're obviously gonna get after it, but I, I love that too. I, uh, I thought that was a lot of fun. It's, it's different. It's, it can be brought out in the women's teams though. I think uh, for, for me, it was always, having a competition like 
it, even if we're doing some passing drill, it's how many good passes can you get or how many times can you, you, you know, pass on your left or pass on your right. We just had to draw the competition out of the uh, more often had to draw competition out of the female players just by having competitions. They often didn't want to. Um, it was more about, uh, did I do this right? Well, let's count how many times you did it right and see how many your, your teammates did. And, and that seemed to help uh, that. Um, I don't know your thoughts on that. It wasn't my intention to get into too much boy-girl stuff. But since you're doing both or have done both, it's interesting to hear you talk about it. Well, early on coaching in high school boys, yes, I definitely did a lot of competitions and they just loved them. If, if we were hitting and trying to hit targets, we aimed at chairs and if they could knock the chair down the gym, of course, when we got the floor fixed, we could no longer do that. We had to use towels or some other target, but hitting chairs was really, really fun. Um, yeah, and any competition you made, because the girls... Um, would have fun if you had a competition, but um, but they can also just do drills and work on fundamentals and 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 maybe get bored, but they would do it. But the guys, it's harder to do that. But it's, it's really fun making competitions for for them, and yeah, they really get into that. But you know, again, the the best the best coaches are the ones that blend those things that we do with the boys along with things that you do with the girls. And it's a combination of, of, of th factors that, that make you a better coach, but there's really, in, in my opinion, not much difference between coaching men and men and women. Um, it's utilizing again, all those tools and all those strategies um, to make it work. You know, I, I think a good place to see that um, is when, you know, you, you either coach girls 16s and you go to a tournament where there's a boys 14s team or you're coaching the boy, you're, you know, either side of that. Because when I was coaching boys, it was like, okay, you're going to see so much discipline. You're going to see so much execution that you better be ready to, to read it and get it, get on it. And if, the, if I was when I've done both coaching the girls, it was like, you're going to see shots you've never seen before. You're going to see balls that you're absolutely convinced they will not get and they will get them and they will go to really weird places. So be ready for that. And it was just so much fun to watch the two differences and ha having both sides have to adapt. Yeah, no, it, it's been, it's just so fun. I just love working now at the high school with the boys. They're they're fun to be around, and they just love the game. Um, yeah, but it is interesting seeing seeing the difference. I I work with one one year at the high school. They got a new high uh, new coach for the girls, and they the coach couldn't find an assistant, and so I said, okay, I will do the JV girls for just this season. Gosh, what an eye opener for me. That was that was crazy. And it was just really hard to get them to focus. I'd be talking about serve, receive, and they're spinning around doing a little dance on the court while I'm trying to explain to them what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and they they got so messed up on the rotations. They gosh, I don't know how many times we were out of rotation they'd they'd switch and then they get mixed up they couldn't switch back and one time I looked in and I saw the starter and her sub in at the same time I go Wait a 
that that can't work. <laughs> um, I tried. I was so busy trying to figure out which rotation we were really in and everything else, and then all of a sudden, the game was over and we won. I go, oh good. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't have to call a timeout or make any change because I was trying to figure it out. But, but um, you know, lots of different things happen, and as a good coach, you gotta, you just gotta roll with the punches, figure out. <laughs> To make it work, figure out a way to keep everybody somewhat happy uh, and enjoying the situation. I wanted to get back to when you first started coaching, you know, when people took the ball overhand on, on the serve. Now you saw that over, right? Is that, yeah. Sorry, so yeah. in the 1964 Olympics, and the USA team went over to Tokyo for the very first time to play, they passed everything overhand because that's what was done in the United States. And they get there and you're no longer able to do that. So every time they did that, it was called. And so then quickly they had to get used to figuring out how to forearm pass and they never did that before. And now it's back to you can, you know, overhand pass. And, and those are the kind of things that made me start thinking about, you know, why are we doing things that, that we are, are doing? So in the 1964 Olympics, Diamatsu, who was coaching the women's team, who was just a tyrant, the girls were just beaten up and, it was it was terrible training methods, but they won. They won the championship, and he is given. Um, he really started the defense that we use today. Defense was very static at the beginning, and then defense became very dynamic. And he's the one that started the roles, and we in the United States call it the Japanese role. It was a roll over the shoulder to get balls. And I saw a video recently that UCLA made with one of their past players, Toshi Toyota, who was a great player in the early seventies from Japan. And he was demonstrating the role. Um, even on the men's side, who he played at UCLA, the dive and the role. Well, today we almost never see the roles that just isn't taught very much anymore and we don't even see the dive as much because in the men's game the game is so fast it's hard to react to that so you see the dive when you're running after a ball but you don't see the dive even in very much and you certainly don't see the roles so those all those things have changed and then you have to ask yourself why and then you have to ask yourself well is any of that stuff that we used to do that we that you don't do anymore, should we do? Should we bring some of these things back? Um, and there's a lot of other examples um, that, that you can look at, but um, there's a lot of stuff that happened and then you no longer see it anymore. Yeah, I found the uh, couple examples of that are like the red or man up defense. No one wants to play that. And that can be really effective. Uh, I do. I will blame Cap for me de-emphasizing the shoulder roll because uh, uh, I was. I think it was a Cap one. They were talking about it and said, 
uh, what, what, you know, the, whoever was teaching said, what, what, what do you, what's the shoulder roll? He said, it's what the player does after they didn't get to a ball. Uh, and, uh, and I was kind of like, okay, maybe, maybe I, maybe I'll work on something else. Yeah. Well, that, you know, I, I have to not agree with yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and, and then we went from the shoulder roll, which I did think was a little more dangerous to, um, the barrel roll where you're not going over your shoulder, just going over your back. And I still like showing that to youngsters because, it's, it's really just a part of, it's a good movement. It helps them not be afraid of the floor. Um, and it's a good way, but you teach them obviously to play the ball first. And then that's a recovery role. And it really came in handy. I'm playing a lot of pickleball now, and that's on the hard court, like a tennis court. And for the most part, I never fall. I never fall. Well. I went after a ball and then I just, I did feel off balance and I knew I was going down on the cement. So I, I went down slowly. I automatically did a barrel roll. I must have done thousands and thousands in my career. And I hopped up, everybody goes, are you okay? I'm going, yeah. <laughs> and not. I did not get a bruise on any part of my body. It was like the judo thing. You know, you just, you know, you go, you're up. And I thought, wow, that was helpful because people, older people, and, you know, they break their wrists, you know, they hit hard on the wrist, they do something. And so I thought, I'm glad I still know how to do that role. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <For> the adults. <laughs> yeah. What are you learning about outside of volleyball? I remember having a discussion with you a few years ago. I think you were studying Spanish and uh, ukulele and lion taming, or there there were a, a whole bunch of different things. Tell us something that you're working on that you're that you're not expert in, where you're learning something new. Well, the the one thing that I started doing when I retired from the university was taking classes at the Claremont Colleges because I lived two miles away and you could audit classes. So I started off with Spanish, which I already could speak. I was fluent, so I took literature classes and read tons of books in Spanish. So that was that was really fun. I was good at that. And then I started taking German, not so good. And then I started taking Italian. And um, I'm pretty good at Italian. I can understand just about anything and can't speak as well, but still still doing that. Um, and I'm still doing the ukulele, which I'm still not very good at. And I recently just finished the 100-day ukulele challenge. And you had to play, play a melody or play and sing a song. Um, and post it for a hundred days. Now, luckily it's a private Facebook, so you can't even see it unless I shared it with you. But when I started, I was pretty bad. And by day a hundred, I was still bad, but I was better. And, um, and I think that it was really, it was a challenge. It was fun. I'm getting better. Um, but I, I think we should do things to challenge ourselves that we're not good at. 
um, and it's scary. You know, so in this learning process, learning pickleball, I'm good. You know, I'm picking it up very, very quickly because, and that's my newest challenge is pickleball, but I still have a lot of quickness that I had as an athlete. So, so I can play and I can play against a lot of younger people and still be successful. So I'm happy because I can play. I'm fairly good. Okay, my ukulele, one, I can't sing. I'm terrible and I can't play very well. So the 100 day challenge was really a challenge, but um, I think we need to put ourselves in those situations. And if you're still coaching and you put yourself in that situation, you will understand better what those players are going through and especially the ones that aren't as good an athlete because it's scary, it's frustrating, it's embarrassing. You know, I mean, there's a lot of aspects to it um, and it helps you deal better, I think, in a coaching situation, dealing with people that are learning, you know, and, and it's good for you to put yourself in that situation because you just, you're not good at everything, probably not good in most things. And so um, I, I find it fun in, in a different kind of challenging way. Yeah. motivation there is it something you like i mean i like i learned a little bit about how to cook because i like to eat i like music so i was learning how to play guitar i like volleyball just for the competition do you are you picking stuff that you aren't necessarily interested in or is it always something that you have an interest in no i'm interested in it i'm just not good at it um <laughs> yeah so you know my cousin who plays classical guitar, when I w went to Hawaii in 1970, says, buy me a, a ukulele and buy one for yourself. And they, the kamakas are something that, you know, they make over there and they're pretty famous for the kamaka ukulele. So I got one for me and him for $20 each, which now mine is worth like $1,500. But I wow. never, I never played it until I retired. And then I thought, oh, this is a great, great time to, to practice doing this. And I actually wrote a couple songs to, and I put to, to the music of other songs, you know, like we, and I did for volleyball, you know. So in 1980, we had a team volleyball song that we all sang um, that I am not singing. But anyway, <laughs> I actually posted that on one of my posts for the 100 days. And it was, you know, it was to the tune of button up your overcoat and, and it talked about volleyball. So I don't know how many people appreciated that song, but I posted it anyway. So um, and I continue to, to read a lot. And right now I'm going through books that I've read and I'm rereading the notes and I'm taking those notes to if I think about writing another book, I'm taking all those notes from those books um, and then giving the book away. I'm trying to minimalize, you know, you get to this age, you're trying to get rid of stuff. Um, I still have way too much stuff, but I'm, I'm doing it with the books so that I can reread them and take the notes. And I, and I do really enjoy that. 
And that still is helping me with, with coaching because it gives me ideas so that every day I go into the gym, I have something new that I can just a quote or uh, an idea, a suggestion. So um, I'm, I'm not using just old things that I've learned before. Every day I want something, something fresh. It keeps me fresh. And I think it's interesting for, for the players. Uh, we're up against our, our time limit. So, uh, I'm just going to say thank you. Uh, and thanks for working through some of the technical stuff. Uh, as always, I, I learned some things. I took a couple of notes here as we were talking stuff that I, I have to remember to look up or to research. Uh, it's been great talking with you again. Um, and, uh, I'm going to sign out because I have to, uh, I have to go. Since we were a little late, I, I have an 11 o'clock appointment. But uh, Steve, are you going to finish us up here? Or? Yeah, absolutely. First, thanks so much, uh, Sue. It's good to see you again. And, um, you know, I think I was thinking back to, uh, let's see if I've got it here. Um, let's see if I can get this. Uh, thinking back to this was this was our time together. And uh it was really great uh, to to be with with this particular group and uh, and you know I didn't realize when I went back I'm like oh damn that's BJ um, so uh, <laughs> so that and and people have have uh, commented that uh, that that Eric's in there too because Eric doesn't like to get his picture taken very often no. um, so it was a it was a great opportunity to work with and, and have a really good experience with with Cap. Uh, and uh, and it brings back good memories of Mike because uh, like uh, like Sue, I I think back uh, to all, everything I learned. And the biggest thing I learned from him is the same thing I've, I've learned here from Sue is the idea of lifelong learning. Mike was always questioning what he was doing and trying to think about the next thing and asking coaches about that. So it was really a great uh, great thing to to be exposed to. So uh, thanks Sue so much for spending time with us today and um uh maybe next time we do it we'll do a little better on the tech side but uh overall i've really enjoyed it so uh, i'll say thanks and i'll give the floor to you one last time so if you've got something you want to share before we go <clears throat> well thank you so much and that picture brought back memories to me that was just an unbelievable group of coaches um and with mike hewlett being there who is just an inspiration, you know, to this day for all of us, but, um, and, and BJ, you had your arm around me. Thank you for making me feel special, <laughs> but I learned a lot from, from everyone. I'm still learning and it was a pleasure to be on this show and, um, I'm happy to be on it again with the, any topic you come up with, but great to see you guys. And, Thank you for all you do for volleyball. Okay, so that so we'll hit the outro and BJ, go do your thing. I got to go watch dance and uh, Sue play some ukulele for us, and we'll see you next time. All right, bye bye. Thanks for listening. We're live on YouTube almost weekly on Sunday mornings in the U.S. You can subscribe on the Coach Steve YouTube channel. We post links to our sessions on the Volleyball Coaches and Trainers Facebook group, and the Talking Volleyball podcast is live on Apple, Google, and Spotify. See you next time.